You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. I'm Andre Prue from AndreWineReview.ca. And I'm Michael Pincus from MichaelPincusWineReview.com. I think I still have a little bit of a, a growl in my in my voice, but I'm much better now. No, your growl was gone. Oh. It wasn't more of a growl. It was more like a mousy whimper. I'll take it. Uh, anyways, we are uh, gathered here on the occasion of this podcast to introduce the next in our legacy series. This is number four, or number five now. Uh, it's number five. Yes, number five. And I think uh, if you're going to do a top five, uh, as far as legacy people go, uh, this is only this this one only makes sense. Yes, definitely, and. We're going to find out in this podcast how close the winery that this individual was involved with uh, was almost called Triggs Jackson. It was. It was almost called Triggs Jackson. And so I assume people will understand or realize that we are going to be talking to Alan Jackson. And this time we are at the Niagara headquarters. So uh, we are here with uh, Alan Jackson on Two Guys Talking Wine. He's actually in my studio. Andre is... At home base. Is that what we're calling your place? Yep, it's the mothership. I don't understand why, because I'm in Niagara. Well, all the recording equipment is here. <laughs> That's a good point. And, and the customers kind of are there, too. Oh, yeah, okay, so there you go. <clears throat> and there you have Alan Jackson. So, you know what? Maybe we should uh, have Alan say who he is, who you are. Why don't you start by saying who you are and why people would know you? Name, rank, and serial number, please. Okay, I'm Alan Jackson. You would probably recognize my name from Jackson Triggs the most. And not the country singer. Correct. He spells his name with one L. I spell mine with two L's. Other than that, we'd be identical twins. <laughs> you almost look alike, too. That's I don't right. people know that. Yeehaw! So uh, we started a tradition with, uh, with Donald Zeraldo here. We have a nice little cheese tray, so feel free to dig right in. But I brought an old bottle of Jackson Triggs wine. Nice. What year? 2002. Uh, I think it's a Grand Reserve, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, Merlot. Now, you were still there, right? This is I was. still you here. This is still me. Okay. I retired in 2009, so it's hard to believe it's eight years ago. Well, all right. And and the, the sale hadn't come about quite yet. Yes, it is. The sale was in 2006. Okay. The sale uh, was in 2000. So this is before the, this is before the sale, 2002. Correct. All right. So this is this is actually something that you would have had a hand in. Right. Andre, do you have a question for Alan while I crack open the bottle? Sure. It's the same question we've been starting with everyone. Uh, I know it got to be a little crazy to start dealing with uh, with wine in this province, but uh, what were you thinking? Let's see. What was I thinking? Let me <laughs> quickly go to the start. I. I've been more or less working on wine full time since 1971. So I guess, what's that? 46 years? Oh, okay. Now, as of the. And I was at McMaster University, and starting in 71, I was doing an undergraduate degree. It was actually in chemistry and physics, of all things. And then when I got that degree, I decided it would be nice to go to graduate school, and in the working summers for my bachelor's degree, 
fellow who was the head of the chairman of the chemistry department had hired me to work summers, and he was a real wine nut, which in those days wasn't nearly as common as it is today. That was a pretty offbeat interest then. And uh, here in Ontario, anyway. Yeah, here in Ontario, anyways, yeah. really in Canada, not much wine consumption then. And he thought it would be interesting to look at wine, so we were originally looked at at uh, sort of the trace elements like chromium and zinc and stuff like that in there. And then that led on to looking at the what's called the volatile components, which are the things that give it the aroma. And I got into that, and then I ended up doing a PhD in that. And the title of my thesis was the vol analysis of the volatile components of Canadian wines. So I did that for four years. And what year would you have started working on your thesis? Uh, 74, I guess. Yeah. So, so when you're talking about the Canadian wines you were using to research for your paper, this is still the, um, the Labresca wines. Absolutely. In fact, I was kind of, I was looking at two, I was, the domestic winery who I was kind of liaising with to get wines so from, so we didn't have to pay for them at the LCBO. <laughs> was Andre's now Peller. Not your Andre uh wine and Andre. Right. That's right. And that was in the heyday of Baby Duck, actually. Oh wow. The lovely and talented Baby Duck. So I did that, carried on. I really wanted to get a job in academia, you know, being on a faculty of a university, but there weren't any jobs available because the universities had been on a hiring spree in the 60s and there were no openings in the 70s. I was, so I concluded I should get a job in industry, which of course in retrospect was the best thing that ever happened to me because I'd probably be dead or insane if I had actually gone into academia. <laughs> academics would be insane mm -hmm. having me amongst them. So. so you're saying that the wine industry didn't drive you insane? No, I was that way to begin with. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> So, I, I, long story short, I had my my thesis defense on Friday before Thanksgiving weekend in 1977, and I started working for John Labatt on the Tuesday after Thanksgiving because John Labatt had split off into different divisions, and they had the beer division, which everybody knows them from for their name. They had a wine division, which at that time, this is prior to your time, Andre, happily for you, I might add. The two big names were Shadow Gay and Shadow Cartier. And Labatt's couldn't understand why they weren't making as much money in the wine division as they were in the beer division, which probably started with the fact that the wines generally tasted terrible. <laughs> the beer didn't. So they thought they needed to upgrade the quality of the wine. And so they hired me to start up a wine research program which I did do, and I worked at that for four years. Meanwhile, they'd also bought themselves an American wine division, which was called Lamont Wines. And I ended up doing research kind of on their behalf as well as some quality assurance. Did Lamont turn into something? Or I don't, I don't, I no, haven't I, heard I think, of them, so. I think it's disappeared right off the face of the earth. Okay, so they didn't turn into yeah. something, nobody bought them. They were a Lamont. bulk winery, fundamentally, in the southern San Joaquin Valley, just outside of Bakersfield. Oh, okay. All right. 
you've ever seen the movie The Onion Fields? No. That no. that's set right, right down the road from where Lamont was. Okay. Good. So and you started with uh, with doing with doing this research for Labatt. Mm-hmm. So I did that for four years, and then they shuffled me off into the Canadian division. So I I was no longer when I was with the research program where I was was in London, Ontario. So I then ended up kind of being centered in Niagara and the head office for the wine division was in Mississauga. So I was kind of shuffling back and forth. One day it would be Niagara and the next day it would be Mississauga. So now when you're talking about that you were doing research for Labatt here, what was the direction of the, of the research? Like what was the, the focus of what, you're, what you were doing? Like were, were they hoping that you would find a way to fix the wines made with Labrusca La or right away did you hear about some of the people planting vinifera like what what was what was going on when uh when they were giving you your i guess your uh, your mandate the the mandate was really to improve the quality and improve the profitability of the wines but it was pretty quickly apparent to me there was it didn't take much rocket science to figure out that the wine was never going to be any better than the grapes were going in and, and the grapes were as we all know not not good. That was the heyday of working with Concord and Niagara and Agawam and all kinds of that have disappeared from the wine scene. I was going to say Agawam. That was yeah. a, that was a grape variety, mm-hmm. and it's disappeared now completely. Or can yeah. you find some of that somewhere? Yeah, it it most of them got torn out in the the free trade transition program. Yeah. The federal government had a big program in place to tear out old not good varieties and replace them with good varieties. So Agawam is gone. Agawam is gone. Correct. Andre, there will be a test at the end. See if you can remember that great variety. <laughs> and spell I've, it right. Too. I've already <laughs> forgotten it. <laughs> so I have uh, this 2002 Proprietors Grand Reserve Merlot and I'm going to get Alan to give me a thought on it. Chocolate. Really? My first on the nose. My first yeah. Is, yeah. is chocolate. I'm surprised if there's surprise in my voice. It's because chocolate to me is, is a terroir feature of the Okanagan. You sometimes get it in Niagara, but not not often. Not often. 2002 was a good year, though. And, nice hot yeah. year. And not there's usually a, in Merlot either. I mean, you'll find it in, in Cab Franc often. Cabernet Sauvignon so too, but I, yeah, in Merlot you don't. Merlot, you get as I said in the Okanagan, you get it. It's actually a, a terroir feature. I'm mentioning that because some wine writers not. I think you two guys believe that the chocolate character in the Okanagan Reds comes from the oaking. It doesn't. No. Take my there. word for it. I've had oaked and unoaked. And many, many of them in the Okanagan. And the unoaked ones get developed too, which is a pretty good clue. But it's not coming from the barrel. It's so, the yeah. soil. It's a te- classic terroir thing. So we have a 15-year-old Merlot here, and again, Andre's going to have to stew it on his side. Although you don't like Merlot, it's just kind of why I picked a Merlot this time around. Yeah, thanks. So you wouldn't be that upset. <clears throat> you don't like Merlot? Did you see Sideways too many times, Andre? No, I think it's just the fact that even in my limited experience, I've found that unless we have a really hot year, and i got to put in parentheses depending on the producer because there's a few people that make kick-ass Merlot every year, but I've had enough Merlot that tastes like bell pepper and... I just, it just doesn't taste good. Uh, well, there's, no bell pepper. there's no bell pepper in this one. 
It's definitely showing no, its age, was a good year. but I mean... Oh, two. The, the impact, of, as an aside, on, of Sideways was so big on people coming to the winery, visitors to the winery, that we actually... I, I can remember writing a one-pager disputing the fact that Merlot is a write-off as per Sideways where Miles won't go to the party because they're going to make him drink Merlot. Oh, yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite movies. But I do like that one. The other interesting thing, but it, it, to me, it's it's kind of a bit of a bellwether variety in terms of temperature for the year. It's it's very temperature sensitive, Merlot is. Yeah. The, the character tends to get baked out. My reference to that is, you know, Australian Merlot is generally, in my opinion, pretty ugly. Because there's no character. It's like oh, dry red. And, yeah, dry red. This uh, this is surprisingly um, now you would you would have made this wine. Am I correct? You were the winemaker at Jackson Triggs, or yeah. by this point you are not got your hand into every day, or you? No, 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 no. I was. You were yeah, you were closely involved then. Yep. Okay. Tom Seaver would have been the head uh, the hands-on winemaker at Jackson Triggs those days. Who was now the director of blended winemaking for Gallo and Fresno. So how so we have you making uh, agawash grapes or at least whatever they were called. And that's in what year doing this research for Labatt's? Uh, 77 to 81. Okay. So now where do we get to Jackson Triggs Winery? How do we get from 81 to Jackson Triggs Winery? Well, 81 to 89 is just life goes on kind of thing. It was the era of coolers and I was heavily involved in coolers and stuff then. And then free trade came along and uh, Labatt, I, I would say they were aware of the fact that the in, best interests of brewing were kind of diametrically opposed to the best interests of wine. And we all knew in the wine division which way that decision was gonna go towards beer, not towards wine. Yeah. So they, they were looking to sell off the wine division and uh, a few of us who were in the senior management, I guess I was the executive president of production by then, decided it would be interesting to look at doing a management buyout, for which most people really thought I'd gone nuts. <laughs> Anyhow, we, we did Alan's that. lost his marbles. He wants to get in the wine business. Well, they were willing to accept, well, to give us a really good price on the assets. So we did that. Bought out the division, which closed on July 4th, 1989. And we, varietal wines, really, we didn't have any varietal wines then, but they were just getting going. That was the hot new trend. Okay. And there were some Ontario estate wineries getting going, getting some traction. Inniskill and Cave Springs was going then, and Henry of Pelham was going then, Chateau Charm. So they're getting a little bit of traction. Anyhow, we decided we would, well, we ended up buying Inneskillen in 1991. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a way into the premium, the okay. developing premium market. But Jackson Triggs was a brand before that, was it not? No, it no. wasn't. It, it came about in 1992, got going, and we went on the market in 93 with a 92 wine. Okay. We thought about doing it under the Inniskillen umbrella, but we want we didn't want to besmirch the Inniskillen name, so to speak. We wanted to keep it 
pristine and keep them independent of things. So for people who don't know, it's obviously Jackson, Alan Jackson, and then Donald Triggs. So how does Donald fit into that also? Well, Donald was the CEO of the Vincor predecessor company, which was Carchet Wines and Beverages. And I remained executive vice president. Kind of operating as COO, I guess. Don was the CEO. But happily, Don's background was in coming up through the ranks until he became a CEO, was in sales and marketing. And of course, my background was all in winemaking and production. So it ended up being a pretty good combination because we were each looking out for our side of things. I was very concerned about making a, a good product that, that looked, that got into the bottle and looked attractive. You know, the labels were on straight and so on. Sounds ridiculous. <laughs> and Don was very concerned about having an attractive because at the time, most of the Canadian wines look kind of cheesy, for want of a better word. Like made on a, like labels homemade in a uh, homemade dot matrix well, printer. Just thing. not state of the art. Yeah. In fact, the the Jackson Trigg designer was Jeff somebody or a guy Donald knew, Donald Zeraldo knew out in Napa, and we hired him to create a really leading edge, attractive package for Jackson Triggs. You know that. It's humbling as a technical guy for me to say it, but what really gets people buying wine is the package. Yep. And then my job is to make sure the wine doesn't let them down, but fulfills their expectations. But they don't go in after the wine until they've tried it. I mean, that's it. What? A snappy label will convince someone to buy the first bottle, but the that's wine right. has to be good enough to convince you to buy the second and the third. Well, Andre, you on many occasions have pointed out to people that you like a certain label. I, I, you know, we've done interviews, and you go, "I really," and you say, "I really like that label." Well, for for me, when I consider a wine, the the whole package. I mean, when I have people over to my place for dinner, uh, I drink wine with a lot of non-wine people, and I drink wine with a lot of people who are design-minded and art artistic-minded. And a wine that's the whole package is well-priced, great wine that over-delivers, and a nice label. It has to look good on the table. And hopefully something that tells a story, too. So I won't ask what the impetus of the name is. That's pretty um, <laughs> self-explanatory. Well, originally, <laughs> well, actually, there's a story there. Mike. Oh, good. Oh, good. Let's get to it. Originally, the going in was was Triggs Jackson. Don was the CEO, and I wasn't. Okay. That was kind of the going in proposition. We had some focus groups in both Toronto and Vancouver with, you know, eight or 10 people and showed them the pack, gave them the concept, talked to them about, showed them the package and then got their responses. And in the very first group, which was in Vancouver, we're sitting in the, where you have focus groups, the, the interested people, I, the client is sitting behind one way glass, listening and, and observing. Anyhow, this one guy in Vancouver said, yeah, I like that Jackson Triggs name. Those guys, they make great lawnmowers. <laughs> Briggs and Stratton. <laughs> so then we wrote down the piece of paper and walked it into the moderator and said, ask them what they think of Jackson Triggs, which we did, and they liked it. You paid off enough people to One get your name first, another. right? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly that's, it. That's how I would have done it, too. Okay, so 93, we're up to 93 at the moment. Yep. Where we have Jackson Triggs now? 
Correct. Okay. Yep. So 93, we have Jackson Triggs as a as a label, as a brand, mm -hmm. and as a winery. Is there an actual building at this point in time? No. Okay. It was all produced at Lincor Wineries in the east, in the Dorchester Road Winery in Niagara Falls in the west, at the uh, former Cartier Winery. So you, ha you actually have two. You have Ontario and you have B.C., yeah, we had parallel programs right from the get-go. Are, are these facilities still around? Like, are they, did they become something? Uh, in the uh, Dorchester Road facility is still around. It's still the main Vincor uh, production facility in Niagara Falls. Casabello is not still around. It, it was sold as part of, uh, well, we, we moved production. Jumping ahead here. We ended up merging the next year with Bright's was in 94. In 94, correct. Okay. And we moved the Western production to the Bright's facility down near Oliver, which which the on land lease from the Incomeet Indian Band. And of course they had a vineyard that became very prominent in the evolution of Jackson Triggs. So you guys came right out of the gate with East and West Coast. It correct. wasn't just like yep. you bought things out. Yeah, you that just was had... always the idea to be coast to coast. Well, I mean, it's even interesting to hear, like, just with these acquisitions, it's almost as if um, Jackson Triggs and, and Vincor were responsible for hitting the reset button um, on the industry in terms of uh, getting rid of old brands that may have been recognized on the shelf and replacing them with newer, um, I, I know, with the intention of making premium brands. Yeah, that's exactly right. You, you captured it right there, Andre. Very very accurately. So, put. so was so that? The Casabella facility is now a strip mall in downtown. Pennsylvania. I thought you were about to say strip joint, and I thought that would be <laughs> it's not, now quite. a strip joint. So, so, but was this the intention with when you were growing Vincor was to just help kind of um, bury sort of the the past, the the stuff that you were researching on, and and um, just help carve a new identity for Canadian wines? Yeah, that that's exactly it. We wanted to. We we thought we had with the concept and, and the you know the burgeoning idea something that would sort of capture the imagination of Canadian wine customers as being the leading edge a decent Canadian wine that you could have and be happy with and not be embarrassed about having on your dinner table. Okay. So this brings us to which year again? Ninety four. Ninety four. Okay, so I'm in ninety four. So we're so we're we're still twelve years away from any kind of sale. So correct? Yep. Yeah. All right. So we're we're twelve years away. So now we got to fill that twelve year gap. What are you doing? Obviously making wine, but now you're acquiring companies. Are you not? You're, you're, you, mm -hmm. you are Vincor at this point. Or? Yeah. Yeah. We're in Vincor as of '95. Okay. The so the combined Brights Carchet entity was renamed Vincor. And so, so it seems to have, like every year something new happens. So ninety three, oh, yeah. you got your own label. Ninety four, yeah. uh, you okay? No, see now you've got me. I can't remember the name of the grape, and I can't remember what you did in ninety four. But ninety five, now you've got Vincor. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's right. So ninety six. Ninety six, I'm not sure. The acquisition thing really got going probably around ninety seven, ninety eight. And was this something you were like bullish about, or you were like, uh, you know what, I, I I make enough wine, I don't want to have to deal with winemaking elsewhere. Some of each, but my heart 
was and always has been in the trying to improve what you've got, like on internal growth kind of thing. Okay. So I was pretty happy trying to cultivate and make the best of Jackson Triggs that we could. And the VQA thing in those years was really popping then. Like we introduced the first VQA under Jackson Triggs in 94. And it, as I mentioned before about the replant thing happening in Niagara with the grapes, so all of a sudden, around 96, 97, for the replant happening around 1991, that means the grapes were starting to come in around 97, 98. And the move in the Okanagan down to the, uh, down south where the Incomete had their uh, vineyard, and we could work, they were wonderful partners to work with out there. But so we were getting an idea of what kind of grapes we wanted. Yeah. And we then started working with the growers particularly in Niagara, because virtually everything in Niagara was contracted. You didn't own your own? No, we didn't own our own vineyards. So what we, we kind of assembled what I would call an all-star team of growers and worked with them, knowing where we wanted to go with the program. Okay. And so you've got one facility out west, you've got a facility out east, and it's just a label? When did you go, you know what, we need our own winery. We need a building. We need bricks and mortar and vineyards and people have to come and see us. Right. In in the late 90s, we began to see that the volumes were getting to the point where we could have our own winery. And the idea was, which is, and Don was the champion of that, he gets full credit, was to actually build a winery whose volume output was already sold, essentially, before the winery was built. Hmm. which is what happened in Niagara with Jackson Triggs Winery. So we, we'd already established enough sales there that when we started producing that winery, we weren't like most wineries saying, gee, I hope we can sell. You were already as selling much that as much. As much as we're producing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So so late 90s, we got a bricks and mortar winery, but you said in 97 you started making some acquisitions. So what's, what's uh -huh. your first acquisition? First acquisition... Well, Inniskillen would have been it was, probably... It was Inniskillen. It was probably R.H. Phillips in California. Okay. And there was one in Washington whose name I can never remember. All right. It'll come to you when I'm not trying to think of it. So, <laughs> so what was the reason that you started to look outwards? Like, it really sounds like you had um, a passion uh, and a drive for... That's a good question. But with the merger happening... Between rights and our market share in Canada of the of the Canadian produced market was already very high, so we had limits to how much we could grow in terms of your market share. Like you know, as you get higher and higher, your odds of keeping growing when you're already in a substantial market share, like say 50% or something like that, it's challenging. So it's much more lucrative to start tapping into foreign produced wines. And especially, it's really a sales, marketing and distribution issue because we had that great infrastructure of a really good sales team and good marketing and good distribution and good relationships with the record board. We could, we could take, for instance, R.H. Phillips and roll them into the Canadian liquor boards and sell a lot of volume overnight so it's all incremental sales for us 
Okay, so I, I know in um, in 2017 now we have a few uh, ambitious winery owners who are starting to look at the export market. When you were looking at acquiring foreign brands, was there any thought to looking at uh, tackling market share in, in other markets or, or doing more planting, or was it just it just made more sense to acquire foreign properties? No, no, we were trying to develop uh, export, particularly to the states with Jackson Triggs. We were with that. And that was coming along really nicely, but with the acquisition of Vincor by Constellation, they felt they wanted to focus their sales on their existing American labels like Davi and so on. So they weren't enthused, I guess, about spending marketing and sales distribution time on a Canadian brand when they still had places to go on there, developing their, their own market share. So now we're acquiring, we've got something in Washington, we've got something in California. I guess my question, to bring it back to a Canadian kind of look, is when did you start expanding uh, wineries out in BC? Obviously you have the, the facility, but now you're gonna, you're gonna end up picking up uh, Sumac Ridge, if I'm not mistaken. You're gonna create uh, Incomee. Uh, you're gonna get See You Later Ranch. Uh, am I missing somebody? You got Ian Skillen, um, yeah, Okanagan, Okanagan, right? And also Jackson Triggs, Okanagan. Yep. And then at some point we got to talk about. Yeah, Sumac Ridge happened around 2002, 2003. That was Harry McWaters, who Harry McWaters was the marketing director for Western Canada for the sort of Casabello, which was part of the John Labatt wine division in the late seventies when I started. So it was kind of, and Harry's a terrific guy. We kept crossing paths and he actually came to us and suggested that, why don't you make me an offer kind of thing? <laughs> make me an offer I can't refuse mm -hmm. before a horse head ends and up in his bed. He had, had a, uh, I guess it was called Hawthorne Mountain as his second label there under I mean, in addition to Sumac yeah. Ridge, and that became See You Later. Yeah, that's right. But the other part came, the big thing, it's important, we started working on the, what's now, I don't know what constellation, the Okanagan Bench Winery. Okay. The, on the leased land from the Incomeep Indian Band. Yeah. Which led to, to the Incomeep Winery. Yeah. And it, it really took the ceiling off for how good you could go on VQA wines out of the Okanagan, in my opinion. Because they were there, at that time, the furthest <laughs> south that you could go in the mm -hmm. Okanagan Valley. That's right. So, I think they still are the furthest south you can go in, in the valley. Say, they still are. I thought there was a couple that are just, I think their vineyards go all the way, but I think there's some wineries that are a little bit further south. Because, like, Incomeep is, is, like, it's literally a 20-minute drive to the, the border, if that. No, yeah, it's not even that, but uh, and their land, their land goes into the states too, does it not, or or it, it cuts no, off? No, it cuts off at the border. I, I think. Okay, I thought when I was there, they said that you know the lands go mm -hmm. into the U.S., but I'm who knows anymore. But Colmena is right there, which is Don Triggs. That's right. Yeah, new winery in the Okanagan. It, it's so, but been, they're on the opposite. The Okanagan Bench Winery is on the eastern side of the, of the valley, 
Colvin and the others are on the western side. So yeah. I'm going to assume you've been down to see <clears throat> Donald down there? Still good friends yep. with Donald? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Yep. There was no animosity? No, and, no. no good. So no, no, the, this whole thing shakes out. The took over, and Don left the next day because he was not wanting to be an employee again, I guess. Okay. And you stuck around, though? I stuck around for three yards. Three years. Okay. And were you, like, head of winemaking? Were you a figurehead at this point? I was mostly doing research and stuff like that and, and supporting the Jackson Triggs brand and keeping an eye on it. So and this was this was a hostile takeover, though, was it not? Well, depends on who you were. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, at, at night, before the act was, well, we had Kim Crawford. I want to mention Kim Crawford because yeah. that was one of the diamonds in the crown. In New Zealand, that we acquired, which was a virtu was and is a virtual winery, which is yeah, big kind of now, key to now. what I'm doing right now. Yes, well, we'll get to that. Mm -hmm. And uh, so yeah, you got Kim Kim Crawford. Yeah, and it was it was received gloriously, kind of still through still comes North through. America when when it was introduced. It's one that's near and dear to my heart because my wife is a Sauvignon Blanc aspirant, and you are and her favorite wine in the whole world is. Kim Crawford Sauvignon Blanc. See, Andre, people do like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. I'm speechless. I see. He, <laughs> does, he, does, he finds it underripe. Uh, you don't go for that asparagus. Look, I just find I just find once again in my limited experience that the wines that we're seeing on the shelf here are getting more and more savory and it's becoming less and less just about the style. And it's kind of like hoppy beers coming from the West coast of uh, the United States. Let's just see how underripe we can make this and, you know, crank up the intensity. And I mean, there's more to Sauvignon Blanc than that. That's not saying there isn't great uh, New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. I like New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc just fine, but I mean, I, I know exactly where you're coming from, Andre. And I am not worlds apart from you. But Kim Crawford is, is to me, the outer limit of go past there and you're crossed into the line that you just described with, of gooseberry, yep. asparagus, put put me off kind of characters. But I, I just find Kim Crawford nicely balanced and has necessary and sufficient amount of that character. So just to, to hit a little a little more history, obviously we have Le Clos Jardin at some point. And, yep. you know, that was uh, supposed to be a, a jewel in the crown of, of Canadian and Ontario winemaking. And that kind of went, pfft. and even re more more recently, it is now completely kaput. But one, were you sad to finally see that, that go? Were you sad not to see it uh, come to fruition as you guys had envisioned it? And what made you want to start that uh, Le Clos Jardin? Le Clos Jardin? Uh, <clears throat> well... I shouldn't say anybody, but my thought is anybody who works on the, who's a winemaker, the pinnacle is Pinot Noir and to some lesser extent on the way, you know, a sort of Burgundian kind of Chardonnay. See, Andre, lesser extent. Go on. <laughs> right. And so you want to have a crack at that. In fact, all these things are kind of, they're <clears throat> the brands that are near and dear to your heart, they're. They're kind of like stepchildren. Jackson Trick, Le Clos. I was the first guy who walked into the property. The doctor and his wife were selling their farm along Old Highway 8. 
just near Cave Springs. Yeah. And in, we were searching for a site to do a joint venture with uh, the Poisse people from Burgundy, which led to La Cloa, and that became it. And Thomas Batchelder, who is was and is a great friend of mine, we had lunch together a week ago today, as a matter of fact, was the guy we brought in to make it happen. So uh, it's a tragedy. What's <laughs> It could have. It could have been something. <laughs> it could have been a contender. Could, yeah, we could have made Pinot Noir. We did make world class Pinot Noir, but we it got kind of buried. Yeah, buried. Right. Well, I mean, uh, we, we we're talking now about Pinot Noir and, and Chardonnay, and I. Uh, what would we? What would you say? Are the um, just give me a second to find a way to, to word this question properly. But I mean, just in in terms of varietals, like what what do you think is is sort of the solution for Ontario? And when you were uh, working with Jackson Triggs, and then you developed um, Le Clos Jordan, like what did you really feel was going to be what defined uh, Ontario in terms of varietals? In terms of varietals, that's a very good you, and you're not going to want to like the answer to this. To me, the I I used to and still think that the the kind of masthead. Red variety for for Niagara is Merlot, because I think we can make the best Merlot in the world. That's how I think of it. I think most winemakers think of it is who can make the best of anything in the world, or can yeah. you have a shot at that? And for us, for Merlot, as I said, it's very temperature sensitive. So California Merlot, eh. Australian Merlot, eh, eh. but cool. New Zealand makes great Merlots. Because they have that greatest Washington, yep. in, if you do it in the right place, makes nice Merlot. Okanagan Merlot's more ticklish. Okay, with whites, getting back to you, Andre, about the, to me, the, the masthead variety for Ontario, <clears throat> not so certain on it. We ha- have been and are continuing to make terrific Chardonnays, although, actually, I'm kind of more of a fan of unoak Chardonnay. So oh like, God! <laughs> God's a fan of them too. <laughs> oh, oh. oh, I don't Chardonnay. One of the banes of my existence. That and Pinot Gris. Oh, Alan, you've just stabbed both of us in the hearts with your oh, uh, favorite varietals. You well, got... I'm I'm not a fan of over oaked Chardonnay. Yeah, nobody but, I think is a fan of over oaked Chardonnay. A, but a nicely done, delicate, fine hand. I mean, there's a bunch of good Niagara unoaked Chardonnays and. I mean, if you want to name some that you've Kassaba, tried, I think makes a brilliant. Actually, yes, I like Chardonnay. their uh, Henry of Pelham. Make a, a, a really good on oak Chardonnay. I think I would have Cave Springs on that list too. Oh, is that the Chardonnay or the Chardonnay Muscade? Now, what do you think of Chardonnay no, Muscade? I've got time for Chardonnay Muscade, although I kind of, I don't, but I don't like it as well as Chardonnay. But I don't. I've worked with it. I've we've had it in our union blends, so I you know, I've got time for it and but to me it's it's a bit too perfumed. So you've picked you picked Merlot as the, the big masthead red. Yep. And your white I know that you're a, a Gewurztraminer fan because I am. because you have that on your on your plate. And on my license and on yeah, my yeah, email. Yeah. So let me you're a big Gewurztraminer fan, so do you see that as a variety for Ontario, or is it just your variety? 
No, no, I see that as a as a varietal for Ontario. Okay. When when we went through the replanting, and I was talking about 97, 98, I, I mean, one of the nice things about being a winemaker is you get to taste all the wines as they come in in the lots, individual lots from the growers. And we were getting just a fantastic quality of, of Gewürztraminer grape from a guy named John Neufeld, who's now the proprietor of Palatine Hills Estate Wines, who's was and is a very good friend of mine. And I used to grab his Chardonnay and that became the basis of Jackson Triggs VQA Gewürztraminer. Sorry, I said Chardonnay, yeah, yeah. Gewürztraminer. <clears throat> so he's so, got what I would call, I, I called mini Carneros in that the characteristic of Carneros is it, and the mini Carneros near John Neufeld's vineyard is it, it tends to get foggy in the morning so the temperatures in the day never reach as high as they would otherwise because the sun's busy burning off the fog. And, and so you end up getting, you stay two, three, four degrees cooler than the rest of the areas, vineyards that don't get that fog. So I, I mean, that's it. We're talking also, about the growing conditions in the summer for Gewürztraminer. But uh, after the couple cold winters that we recently had, Gewürz has become an endangered species in this province with a lot of people. Um, so has so has Merlot, which is kind of going to lead me to my, my next question. And so Blanc. And so Blanc. So so one of the varieties that you're claim, that you're saying is is a, is a bellwether for this. Right. Uh, is, is actually one that is hard to maintain and a lot of people are getting rid of. So how can we continue to make good Merlot if there's not going to be that much good Merlot around? Question mark. Yeah, I guess I came uh, I came up and sit it down yeah, on that. Yeah, it's the challenge of of the growers because I know and I sympathize with them 100%. Obviously, I'm in the business from the winemaking end as opposed to the vineyard end of things, but I recognize the need for both sides of the equation to make a living. And if you're growing a grape variety that gets massacred every time we have a really cold winter, it's not working for them. So we've talked so, to others who have said that the, the core varieties for Ontario, and Andre, you can help me here if I forget anything. So for whites, it's Chardonnay, Riesling, and uh, is there a third one, uh, Andre? Pinot Gris is getting a footnote mention. Come on, that was not not one of them. It was. Uh, I've heard a lot of people no. saying that. Look, look, the five that I've heard are Gamay, Cabernet Franc, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Riesling. With, uh, I would have put so Blanc on that list. I my ones would have been Chardonnay, Sauve Blanc. Yeah, I'm I'm not so bullish on Riesling, which I know puts me in the minority. In the minority. Yeah, for sure. But I've always approached things, both in winemaking and in my evaluating things from consumer terms. I love doing tastings with consumers and get it, listening to them react to wines, respond to wines, and talk to me. We still have this thing going on with Riesling with a lot of people who think sweet. They hear Riesling and they think sweet. It's still there. It's, it's challenging. Of course it's still. I think, I, think it'll always, I think it'll always be there. I don't think Riesling right. will ever shake off sweet as I'm, I'm, almost, I'm almost positive Ontario will never shake ice wine as it's as not just its calling card, but what everybody will immediately go to when they think of Ontario or Canadian wine. And we want them to think of other things, but they will immediately go ice wine. 
and and, and I think we're in we're the trying same to boat. get. Me personally, I'm trying to get to the thing. DQA port. Yes, your port is wonderful. <laughs> uh, so, so now uh, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you uh, have yeah, a little we... bite there while I go into a bit of a, a talk here. Um, so, I'm, I'm just gonna go with the timeline. So now, what have you been up to since 2007? 2009, you left the winery. 2009, I left the winery, and I had a kind of consulting contract with Vincor for a couple of years. But at, by total coincidence, at the same time I was leaving Vincor, a guy who was a district sales manager in the sales department at Vincor named Andrew Von Teichmann was leaving to start up his own agency. And he and I had a email exchange when we were leaving and said, it would be neat to have a coffee now and then see what's happening. And I wished him all the best in his no bench. And Andrew had grown up in the wine industry because his dad owned Peely Island oh. in the old days. So Andrew literally grew up kind of working in the wine shop at Peely Island. So Andrew knew, knew his wines. He, he's now got a sommelier certification. And then we, we got together for a coffee, I guess, probably six or seven months later. And he was talking about, he was trying to, uh, the, the old challenge when you have a wine agency is you you b take a brand from a, a international winery and you grow it to great volume and your contract representation contract with them expires and we I learned this the hard way when, when we bought Enniskillen and, and they had an import agency and then when they when the contract comes up they're free agents and they they walk away <laughs> and you you we literally built an Italian brand up into like quarter of a million cases in a, a few years back in the Enniskillen days. And then they split and went elsewhere and you're left with nothing. So Andrew said, how do you avoid that? I said, well, you control the brand so they can't walk away on you. And he said, how do we do that? Why don't we look at starting up our own brand? So, so we did and that led to union and yep. the union name came from union station, but also the union, we decided we wanted our, point of uniqueness was going to be multiple varietals so that it wasn't we've never had a single varietal brand in the union umbrella so it's multi-varietal and how long has that been going for that's been going since 2010 okay and so it's been going seven years and it's it's in the lcbo obviously it's in the lcbo yep. well it's yep. only available in the lcbo because it's a virtual brand well, I would have to believe it's through the agent, too, correct? You can get it through the agent, or it's only the LCBO? Only the LCBO. This is a very cagey. I shouldn't have asked that question. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, we, you, we are a virtual winery, which I mentioned Kim Crawford being near and dear to my heart. Yeah. I, I mean, there's a number of virtual, very famous. Wolf Blast yeah. was a virtual winery for the first 20 years or so of its existence. Kim Crawford remains a virtual winery, but there's a precedent there. It's a great idea, Shy. Your people, do they all know what a virtual winery yep, is? Yep, I would think that we all know what a virtual winery is, one that does not have a bricks and mortar yeah. uh, building. That's what a virtual winery is. We have a few in Ontario, Narai Cellars, uh, 2027. Yep. Um, Andre, you want to pipe in here when you come up with one? 100 Marks, I think, was, uh, was one. I'm not sure if it still is or not. Um, but Shelter. Batch Elder. Batch Elder, right. Yeah. 
Okay, those are all virtual. Uh, Meldville. Meldville, yep. Yep, Derek Barnett's uh, new project. So, yeah, yeah, all virtual So we wineries. decided we'd have a swing at doing a virtual winery. And we got a winery production license, which is significant, because unlike all those ones you just named, they're captive to their host winery. Correct. We, Our license follows us around to whatever host winery we go to, which is a great advantage. Is 2027 now has a different kind of license, Andre? They have that same license. Yeah. Same and license. so does uh, Thomas Bachelder. Yeah. All right, so there you go. But, yeah. So, Union Wine. So, you make a port, you make a white, you make a red. Anything yes. coming up? Rosé. Make a rosé. The LCBO, in its infinite wisdom, has decided to make some rosés year-round offerings in the SKU lineup. About time. We got Union Rosé in one of those slots. Oh, good. Before, it was just you were in the cattle call for the summer programs which is a difficult place to be. And do you have any other wines in the pipeline that you're thinking of? Maybe something sparkling? Maybe... Nope. seems like uh, everybody else good, is making sparkling. Good question. So. Or ice wine. Ice wine. The, ice, the port actually happened from a discussion about why we didn't have ice wine with one of the category managers at the LCBO. And I, one of the things... I've been... In 45 years in the industry, there's certain... I have my distinct opinions on certain things and what I think the world doesn't need is another mediocre ice wine or another mediocre VQA sparkling. So yeah. I've, I've not wanted to go there. Where I've wanted to go is what I think is more interesting territory. The port was my baby and has been for a while. I want It's doing penance to the wine gods. By making a good one. To making a decent port style wine. Well, what made you decide that that was the direction that you wanted to take? Well, uh, it's an easy one. I've always really liked port a lot. <laughs> and, and I did. I was pretty disgusted, I guess is the way. In my early days of my career, we had all these horrible things called port. This is before the international agreements came into place, and you actually could call them port, but they were all targeted at rubbies for a lot of <laughs> so as i said i am trying to do penance to the wine gods we do have now in the world of brand maturity because union's been out there for seven years it's getting to be a mature brand so we're we are introducing one in it will be shipping to the lcbo in may we're producing it for the first time in april it's a fun brand mm. this is your scoop i'm ready for the day. i've got i'm I, my yeah. ears are open We've developed offshore from a marketing company in Spain that uh, Andrew identified. And it, the brand name is called Don't Poke the Bear. <laughs> and that's coming in. That's coming in. Right. And it's Don't, D-apostrophe-O-N-T, as opposed to D-O-N apostrophe T, to make it D-ont, because it's Ontario VQA. Oh. <clears throat> oh, that's awesome. It's a fun, obviously, a fun brand. Well, I think that's funny that you're referring to that as your fun brand. What has Union been doing up till now? Like, you've got your bottles wrapped in this nice paper. Like, we talked earlier about how I like nice labels. I, I remember when I was just starting out writing, I got in touch with Andrew very early in what I was doing because your label stood out on the shelf. 
So I don't know how much more fun you guys could be having. <laughs> yeah, that one, the, the, yeah, the, the skirts on them definitely, uh, they're polarizing. People either love them or hate them. But to the point we were talking about earlier about the package attracting people, that just grabs everybody's attention. When, I, when they say, what's your brand? And I say, it's Union. And I say, look for the skirt. The skirt over the bottle. And that's us. And we're the only one on the shelf. So Don't I... Poke the Bear is going to have a, a traditional label, but a very fun. And it's a blend. Concept. It's a blend. It's a blend. And a blend of what? Can we let that cat out of the bag, too? Like, what other grapes we, are we, going? We can. Put on your seatbelt. Okay, I'm ready. Strap it in. Okay. The blend. Do you know what my all-time unfavorite? Grape variety? Variety has, has been. White or red? Red. Let's go Cab Franc. You didn't seem to... Nope. Okay. Cab so. No, Capsule. No, I love Capsule. All right. Wait, all right. Wait, he, uh, was he was complaining. Oh, Baco. Oh, you're not using Baco, are you? Yeah, it's a Cab Baco blend. And I shouldn't have told you because if I had I had you do a blind tasting, oh, I honestly God. don't think you'd pick out the Baco. We just, we, I'm, I'm, I'm anti-Baco. Well. But I look forward to trying was yours. I, but this, it, it, it's a seamless, the, the Cab Baco blend. It's a 2015 the, the cab has been oak aged. The backhoe is, it's just amazing how it fills in with coffee characters. And you go with so it's a, a little, some fruit from the backhoe into the coffee character, and then zoom, you're into big black fruit. So is it predominantly backhoe or predominantly cab with a backhoe? Predominantly bottle. cab. With a backhoe bottle. With, with a backhoe backing. Back, right. <laughs> With the backseat. But is so hot in the LCBO at the moment. Like, anything Bacco is seems to be selling really well. See, that's really the, that's the demand. conversation we had, and I, I don't, I don't think that's, I don't think that's a good thing. But anyway, well, for, the guys who know how to handle it, right? Like Henry and Pelham, Henry and Pelham and Sandbanks. Yeah. And uh, Sanson out and, in the Lake Erie North Shore, I think he does a great job with yeah. it. But I, I, I think yeah. it's such a hit and miss grape variety and. You talk to anybody and they say, "Oh, I love Baco," and you go, "Okay, where do you where do you like your Baco from?" And they say, "Henry of Pelham." Well, you don't like Baco. You like Henry of Pelham Baco. You don't. Right. So that's true. So well, let's now, let's we've we've talked a little bit about Union. We've talked a bit about what you're up to now. Um, I guess I'll I'll frame this because this is the first podcast we've really done since we have a new president south of the border talking about ripping up NAFTA. Uh, where do you see the future of the uh, industry heading? That would have been my next question. Well, very good question. Uh, we're probably the wine, the Canadian wine industry is probably in a little bit of a sweet spot there because we don't sell much into the States. So what Twitler chooses <laughs> to do or not to do. <laughs> to try and prevent Canadian wines from getting into the U.S. doesn't really impact that many of us. So no, and not there's just... certainly a presence of the California wine. You can't complain about the balance of trade on 
No. Between the U.S. and Canada. No, we were sold out, but that's another story for another day. However, there's lots of room for alternate facts in that. Yes, there are. Analysis. And But but I guess what Andre was asking is, you know, forget the, the U.S. question. Um, where do you see the Ontario industry going, even within itself? Within itself? From, well, there's now, I think there's well over 150 wineries in the VQA. I believe so, yes. Which maybe is too much. It's too fragmented. So I think the high ground going forward is to have fewer, better wineries. Okay. And see how things emerge. And the the nature of the consumer, which is, as I said, I've always kind of been a start with a consumer kind of guy. The nature of the consumers is changing in the stores. You've got Gen Xers and millennials, especially the millennials coming in who are pretty keen on wines, which is great. You're welcome. <laughs> exactly. I'm a Gen Y, I think. That's where I fall in. Well, you're in the cusp then, Andre, right? 83? Yes, I'd be, depending on which journalist you're talking to and what topic they're shitting on millennials about, I am or am not a millennial. And the only thing that Andre has not mentioned in this podcast is what, Andre? I'm from Saskatchewan. Ta-da! He mentions that, I think, in every He's podcast. from Saskabush? Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's why, yeah. I, that's why I can relate, with, that's why I can relate with the love of Gewürztraminer. I mean, uh, Saskatchewan... Alan wants was, to know what part you're from. I'm from Regina. The city uh-huh. that rhymes with fun. There was a young wine writer from Regina? Yeah. Right. <laughs> we'll finish that. Who lost himself in a... Anyway... Limerick, another yeah. time. So you see, you see the the industry consolidating itself. I do. There's probably no rocket science in any segment where you get the pie being cut into tiny tinier pieces than are viable. That kind of thing will happen. So there's li- there's little room for growth in Ontario. No, no, there's there's a lot of room for growth, but up. Like we need, you know, when you look at the LCBO has really great market share presentation slides about what the share market share of Niagara VQA is in, in the different price segments. And we're doing well at sort of up to 12, maybe up to $15. But then we're, we're not doing as well in the 15 to 20 and even worse in the 20 to 25. So we need to, and that's where some of the uh, hot VQA winers, especially uh, the newer ones, yeah, Saba yeah. and uh, Taz, they're they're treading new territory for Niagara wines, and that that's great. It's great for everybody that they're doing that. In the upper upper echelons they're of the place, they're taking away the glass ceiling. I mean, you talked about Chile before, and in my opinion, the big problem commercially Chile's always had is that. People aren't don't seem prepared to pay as much for a good Chilean wine as they will for Australia or even now our Argentinian wines are selling for way more like the Malbecs than the Chileans are, yep. which to me is a travesty. Yeah, some... I think the wines coming out of Chile are, are terrific. They really are. That's what, but, my, my, one of my, two of my favorite regions, uh, Spain and uh, and Chile. I think Spain is, you know, got great values yeah. and and Chile as well, great value wines. Why drink a Bordeaux when you can drink a Rioja, right? Exactly. Something, and it already aged when you buy it. Mm-hmm. You know, something that's 10 years old. And you're like, wow, I didn't have to sell that at all. And it was 10 bucks. So, 
Andre, do you have anything else for Alan? No, I'm just stewing on the on the idea of of, uh, of cutting the the pie into smaller pieces and things like that, because um, I, I can understand sales at the LCBO might be tougher, but I'm just wondering if maybe sales at the cellar door might be might be a different story depending on who we who you would talk to in terms of uh, wines when you're pushing north of that twenty twenty dollar mark, because there are a lot of great brands that just aren't producing the volume to make it to the LCBO. Do you see any big changes coming down with how the LCBO is doing sales to maybe give um, smaller wineries that could be producing higher quality wines more consistently, giving them better access to market? Do you, do you think that's something that could help Ontario? That's a very good topic. Uh, the, the wine and grocery stores yeah. is is really dynamic. I mean, I think the folks at Loblaws think that they could rival the LCBO in sales. 10, 15 years down the road, which is revolutionary, right? Good. If they and, if they were able to, to control their own pricing, I think that would be even better. Yeah, that's just getting... They're just getting nicely established in it now. But, well, but if you go into some grocery stores and look at how they've selected their their wine portfolio, it's, it's amazing how in some of those stores you could go in and... You could exclusively buy your wines in some of those grocery stores and drink a really nice selection of wines. They've been really thoughtful it, in it, putting together their portfolio. So it's it's a changing changing world, let's put it this way. The LCBO is not the only the only game in town anymore. And with the grocery stores, with the imports, it really changes the pictures. And the, the beer portfolio, the wine portfolio, the merchandising of it is... Are you are you in uh, grocery stores also? We are. I think on that note, I can uh, cut the tape and thank you very much for giving us the time, Alan. It's been, it has been an absolute pleasure getting to talk to you about this. I'm sorry I couldn't be there in person. Yeah, you missed a, a pretty decent wine, Andre. You were you were in here. You were in person. You were just a couple of hours away. You know, I really love that we get a chance to talk to these people. And it's been really fascinating to hear how all of these people who help pioneer the industry seem to have a different answer on what the future of Ontario looks like and what varietal is going to help define us. And Alan Jackson sent a dagger straight through my heart talking about his love of Merlot. I know that. I felt that. Uh, I could feel that from here. But it was such a good wine we were drinking. It really was. Who am I to argue with the man and the legend that we have in front of us? I guess I'm just going to have to learn to like it. Yeah, uh, although I think he would even get arguments from people that uh, Merlot is not the great for uh, for Niagara. Well, I mean, the bottom line is, as with everything else, we have to put the caveat, not everything grows well everywhere, but, uh, I mean, that's a bit of a tangent. We can save that for another podcast. But, but good things grow in Ontario. All right, well, until next time, uh, I'm not sure who we have next on our Legacy series, but uh, definitely stay tuned. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. Leave us a review. Uh, I'm Andre Pru with AndreWineReview.ca. And I'm Michael Pincus from MichaelPincusWineReview.com. Andre, as always, good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. <laughs>